You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, my name is Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to our podcast tonight here at LifeSpa.com, where we prove ancient wisdom with modern science. Tonight, we have a special guest, Dan Butner, author of many best-selling books on the Blue Zones. And I'm going to give you a little introduction about Dan. Dan is a National Geographic Fellow and multiple New York Times best-selling author. He has discovered the five places in the world dubbed the Blue Zones where people live the longest and are the healthiest. His New York Times Sunday Magazine article about these places, the island where people forget to die, was one of the Times' most popular and his National Geographic cover story, The Secrets of Living Longer, was a finalist for a National Magazine Award. Junior was, works in partnership with Healthways, municipal governments, and various insurance companies to implement his Blue Zone program into more than 20 cities thus far and has dramatically improved the health of more than 5 million Americans to date. I don't know if you get this about Dan, but to actually write a book and then implement it into the real world and change people's lives at the, in the, at the level he's doing is nothing short of amazing and miraculous. I am so blown away that he's I've written books and I, and I know how it is to change the culture and make a dent in the society. And I, I am so honored to have him as a guest because he's made such a massive dent in the lives and health and lives of people here in America. So that is just amazing. He has, uh, he has um, uh, his books, many of them, the Blue Zone books, uh, uh, one, the Blue Zones, uh, Lessons for Living Longer from the People Who Have Lived the Longest, Thrive, Finding Happiness in the Blue Zone Way, The Blue Zone Solution. I love this book. It's about changing people's lives here in America. Eating and Living Like the World's Healthiest People all have remained bestsellers, along with his new book, his new book, which is releasing today, the Blue Zone of Happiness, a Blueprint for a Better Life. Dan has appeared on the Today Show, NBC Nightly News, Good Morning America, Dr. Oz. He actually took Dr. Oz to one of the Blue Zones directly, NPR, Oprah. And Dan holds three, this is amazing, Guinness Book World Records in Distance Cycling. And my first question to Dan is, how does a guy who has three, I'm an endurance athlete, Ironman triathlete, you know, in my day, uh, so I get the endurance thing. One of the most important lessons of these Blue Zone people is to move naturally. How does the guy who has three Guinness Book World Records in distance cycling, cycling across the Sahara Desert, that one of the how does that guy move naturally today? How did you get from that life to this life? I got old. <laughs> <laughs> No, well, when you look at the world's longest-lived people, they're actually not running marathons. They're not doing triathlons. They're not pumping iron. Uh, they're doing things like walking or gardening, regular low-intensity physical activity. They're probably nudged into moving about once every 20 minutes or so. So their physical activity is spread out over the course of a 14- or 16-hour day. So they're getting as much exercise. It's just not painful. So how does that relate to people today? Like how, when you look at what's going on today, people are being motivated to exercise more. We're told in study after study that, that exercising is the way to hack into longevity, to hack into cognitive decline. 
and people are exercising in their one hour, you know, time of the day. How do you, in your, in your work with the Blue Zone people, how do you get them to have a 16 hour active day or what's your take on that? Well, I'm a bit of a contrarian when it comes to exercise. I, I think it's been a, a public health failure since uh, fewer than 20% of Americans get enough exercise to, to uh, qualify for minimum recommendations. I'm a big believer that if we want to get Americans moving more, we have to reshape our environments so that we're nudged into movements. I'll give you a good example. The simple act of taking a bus to work or, or to school um, that occasions about 19 minutes of physical activity per day, which is more than the average American does right now. And mm. your lower chance of heart disease dropped by about 10 or 15%. So rather than trying to hound people or guilt people or, or, or sell them something to move more, I'm just a big believer that we deconvenience our homes and we build our cities so that the roads are not just for cars, but they're also for humans. Make sure parks are cleaned up. Uh, go back to the wisdom of our grandparents and have a have a garden out back uh, where, well, you know, and it seems simple and it seems insignificant. But if you're out weeding and watering and harvesting every day for four months, that that physical activity counts. And it's range of motion. And it's especially good as people get older and balance issues become uh, more important than gen, than just brute strength, which you might be concerned of when you're. 20 years old and in singles bars. So are you suggesting that maybe what we're doing is actually, I, I get it that it's a failure that only a certain percentage of the population are doing it, but the ones who are, are they at risk for overdoing it, overtraining, burning out too early, breaking their bodies down to build themselves up? There's some evidence for that. The, so for he, humans have been around for about 25,000 generations and uh, for all but the last, you know, four or five generations, life expectancy of our species has been about 30 or 31. So we are, our, the, our machines, our, our bodies are really only designed for 30 years, and we now want to push it to two or three times that. So you don't want to be pounding on your body, risking joint damage or, or um, uh, ligament uh, uh, damage or, or um, you, you you don't want to uh, ride the vehicle so hard that it's not good for the second two-thirds of our lives. So I'm just saying when you go to Blue Zones and you really look at parts of the world where people are making it healthy to age 90 and 100, um, they're, they're walking. They're shepherds. They're 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 moving but but they're not pounding on themselves and they're not thinking that they can sit in their office for eight hours a day and make up for it in 20 minutes in the gym or being the weekend warrior it's, it's never how we evolved as a species so even the persistence runners you know like the books like born to run you know you we're suggesting that that kind of running may have created some early breakdowns some early degeneration that didn't give them the longevity that we're looking at in the blue zones is that what you're saying yeah that, those mexicans didn't live a particularly long life now i think when you're 20 and maybe 30 your body regenerates pretty quickly and easily you 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 recuperate from injury but yeah. you get into your 40s 50s or 60s long distance running's probably not as good of an idea uh, no, I, so it just depends how old you are. 
I mean, you're what, 25 or something? It's fine for you, Doc. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so, one other question, I think, before we get into your book on happiness, so I really want to talk about one of the big questions that everybody has is, is you know, what to eat. And, and um, some of these cultures, like in uh, Okinawa, this 80% carbohydrates, the Costa Rican group, uh, 68% carbohydrates. This, the, in Sardinia, it's 65% carbohydrate. So there's your sort of high-carbohydrate diets, very, very low meat diets. So my question is, can you, can you summarize that? Everybody wants to know how many carbs should I eat? How much protein should I eat? Um, have you titated that down to uh, something that people can hold on to as opposed to just non-processed good whole foods from your garden? So carbohydrates is kind of a meaningless term because you have to remember that both lollipops and lentils are carbohydrates. Sure. And and when you try to lump them all into the same group and and label it good or bad, you get into trouble. So uh, if you look at, um, you know, we did a meta-analysis, 155 dietary surveys done in all five blue zone areas over the last 100 years, and you take the average. Um, the four foods that emerge most common, and they're common to all blue zone area, are diff different kinds of whole grains, greens, and that's very highly associated with longevity. Right. Uh, in, in the Icarian blue zone, they're, they're eating about 80 different types of greens regularly, and they're the, you know, the type of weeds that we, greens we'd weed whack in our backyard. They're making into beautiful pies and, and, and salads. And then nuts and beans. And I argue that beans are the cornerstone of every longevity diet in the world. Yeah, and, I uh, agree with that. Very, very, very little sugar, probably about a quarter of the added sugar we have in our diet. And they do eat meat, but meat is mostly a celebratory food uh, eaten about um, five times a month on average in blue zones and, and pretty small portions. So, so when you say meat, you're talking about red meat. Uh, but some of these cultures do eat a lot of fish. Um, so you're talking about red meat when you say meat? Well, oddly, they don't eat a lot of fish because okay. the blue zone areas are inland, uh, often a day's journey from the seas. So traditionally, you know, until about 1980 or so, they were eating very little fish. Um, even in Greece and Sardinia and Okinawa, they're not big fish eating cultures. Wow, okay. Uh, the the type of meat they they do eat is pork. Um, you see pork, but again, it's a celebratory food. A little bit on Sunday after church, or during during the Lunar New Year, they'll slaughter the family pig, but not the kind of breakfast, lunch, and dinner uh, meat consumption that we're used to here in America. And I and and that is indisputable. The longest live Americans, by the way, the Seventh Day Adventist. Um, they the um, that, well, they're broken up into three categories, meat eaters, um, lacto-ovo uh, vegetarians, and then the, the pure vegetarians. And the vegetarians are living longer. And that's a study that followed 103,000 Americans. So it's gold standard epidemiology. So um, so to make it simple, eat a cup of beans a day. <laughs> so when you think about because meat is such a big issue, I mean – People who are mostly or all vegetarian are living longer. So are we actually suggesting that a vegetarian diet uh, is something that uh, 
is actually where people should be going. Obviously, we'd feed the planet a whole lot better if we did that. Um, Indisputably. You know, people are worried about protein, but the average American gets about twice the protein he or she needs. Um, you can get uh, as much protein from uh, beans and rice and sweet potato as you can from eating a burger patty or a steak. So, um, and you're, if you're if you're eating meat more than twice a day, your chance of diabetes and cancer about triple uh, over time. So, um, what we saw in the blue zones, and when I when I look at the evidence that underpins the observations, uh, I I've emerged absolutely convinced that a vegetarian diet, very 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 low meat diet, is is the way to go. Complex carbohydrates, not the uh, not the simple carbs. So you did a lot of your work in Iowa changing the diets of meat eaters to more of a vegetarian plant-based diet. You know, I find in my practice that a lot of people have difficulty making that transition. A lot of vegetarians are very unhealthy vegetarians. They eat nothing but sugar, and they, and they actually don't fare very, very well. I'm curious, how is, is, it a, is it a transition period that these people have to make it to kind of to wean off the meat and get on the vegetables? How do you do with these kind of these Midwesterners who have been born and raised on meat? How do they do transitioning to a vegetarian diet? Well, you want to make uh, plant-based foods cheaper, more accessible, and tastier. So the last thing you want to do is tell people not to do or scold them or, or tell them that meat eating is somehow bad or wrong, but do celebrate uh, plant-based eating. So when we are, do our citywide programs, uh, we first, we make sure everybody understands the Blue Zone research. The longest of people in the world are eating mostly plants. And then we Blue Zone certify restaurants that offer at least three plant, plant-based plant uh, entrees. And then in schools that we help teach the um, lunchroom how to add more plant-based food into uh, the school lunches, sometimes it's doing things as simple as putting the vegetables first in line because kids are more likely to pick them up and eat them than if they're last at lines when they're often overlooked. And then we work with uh, city council. We have a food policy bundle that essentially favors fruits and vegetables over fast food and junk food. And there's about 30 different policies the city can adopt. And we don't tell them they have to do anything, but we show them the evidence. Uh, we help them come to consensus on what, what is effective and feasible for their city. And then our team over the next three to five year helps the city implement, uh, pass the ordinances or, or, uh, programs and then implement over the next three to five years. And we find it's very effective. Uh, in, in three cities in California, the beach cities, uh, we were instrumental, uh, in lowering the average BMI of the entire city by about 14% which translates to about 2,900 fewer obese people in a population of 125,000. So these subtle nudges uh, applied with enough uh, intensity with over enough time at a population level, you see plant consumption going up significantly, and you see BMI, uh, obesity, and all the chronic diseases that follow from that uh, start to drop. So really, if we can just get them to eat more vegetables and eat less meat, doesn't have to be 100%, doesn't have to be as, as strict as the blue zone people, you're going to still see results, right? That's right. You won't get them all the way to blue zones, but if you get them 20% the way there, you'll see a 
commensurate drop in diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. And mostly people need, if you want to get people to eat better food, uh, they need five things. One, it, it has to be accessible. Two, they have to be able to afford it. Three, their kitchens have to be set up so it's easy for them to make it. Four, they have to like it. I could tell you that broccoli will add four years to your life expectancy, but if you don't like broccoli, you might eat it for three or four months, but then you're going to quit eating it. And then the fifth thing is you need a social network around uh, mm. that kind of eating. So arguably um, finding a half a dozen res- uh, plant-based recipes that you like to eat and then going out and making a few vegetarian friends are, the, are probably the two most powerful things you can do to change your diet for the long term uh, and reap the benefits. Wonderful. So let's talk about your new book uh, on happiness. And I'm, I'm guessing that that has a lot to do with the social network. Talk to me about what you found about how these people and why these people are so happy in the blue zones. Well, first of all, the idea behind the blue zones is we find the, the people in the world who uh, are most extraordinary, and then we reverse engineer what they do. So blue zones, it was about longevity, and we found five places. Uh, happiness is about um, the different facets of happiness. So academically, happiness is a meaningless term. I mean, we all use it, and we kind of know what it means, but when you drill down, there are really uh, three main facets to happiness, and they are how we evaluate our lives, uh, from day to day, uh, do we feel secure? Do we feel healthy? Are we doing what uh, is expected of us in life? Uh, are we using our skills? Uh, number two is how we experience our life from day to day. Are we enjoying our lives moment to moment, day to day? And they're often mutually exclusive, uh, uh, evaluating our life and experience our life. So this afternoon, for example, I may want to sit on the porch and drink beer, and that might make me happiest. But at the end of the day, I'm probably not going to evaluate my life very highly, you know, if all I did is sit around drink beer all afternoon. Um, and then the third one is uh, purpose, which is measured by do you do something new and interesting every day. So for this book and for a National Geographic cover story that's coming out on Monday, um, we found the three parts of the world where that most illustrate these three different facets of happiness and we divulge what uh, triggers these types of happiness. And we make the point that if you, if you want authentic, lasting happiness, you want to look at happiness a little bit the way you look at it, your, like your, your, fi- your financial life. You want a balanced portfolio of uh, experience your life well, Evaluating it nicely with pride, and then at the end, uh, living living your your life with purpose and meaning. So, where are these places? So, uh, Singapore uh, is the happiest place in Asia, uh, but it best illustrates this notion of high life satisfaction or high evaluative happiness. Uh, Cartago, Costa Rica, highest level of of um, uh, experienced happiness. People love their day, their life day-to-day, moment-to-moment. And then Purpose was uh, in a, a town in northern Denmark called Alborg. And um, the three of them come together to form a, a really nice composite of, of uh, how we would ideally live our lives. So when you talk about happiness, is it, you know, how much of it, you know, as I was reading some of your books, it, it struck me, obviously, you've got these social structures, these people, even in these places you're mentioning, 
the, the communities there. They eat together. The families are extended. They live together. They have this relationship. How much does that relationship growing up in an extended family where the kid feels completely safe in their childhood to, you know, allow themselves to, to fully be themselves as opposed to in our culture where there's a lot of isolation. Kids have to kind of, uh, you know, engage in, develop, project a personality on the screen to be safe and secure in school and childhood. And oftentimes, find that their happiness is based on the return on investment. I have to, if, I, if I'm liked or cared for or appreciated by others, I'm therefore happy. These groups seem to be content because it's their nature to be content and they have a support system around them to do that. So I guess my question is how much of the, the power nine, which a lot has to do with community and, and, and purpose and these things, how much of that related to, relates to, and they're growing up in that environment to their happiness? Well, first of all, the, 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 the Power Nine and Blue Zones is, and the Blue Zones of Happiness are completely separate books with separate right. tenets. But um, when, when you look at the happiest places in the world, none of them are happy by chance. There is a genesis to it. And in every case, 50 to about 150 years ago, some enlightened leaders uh, put in place a number of policies that began an upward ratcheting of well-being and quality of life. And uh, some of those early policies are favoring education over economic development, especially educating women, which produce healthier, smarter kids who grow up to be more productive and vote in better leaders who would make, in turn make better decisions. Uh, public health is way more important than health care and the way we think about it, i.e. making sure people don't get sick in the first place rather than spending trillions of dollars as we do in America to fix the problem after it's happened. Um, most of our happiness or lack thereof is driven by the environment that we live in. And some of it um, is uh, very hard to change and some of it's really easy to change. And I essentially argue that if you want to get happier, forget all these sort of positive psychology uh, uh, strategies of, of meditation and, and gratitude and savoring because you won't remember to do it forever. However, if you change your environment, that creates a permanent intervention that can favor your happiness for years or decades. For example, uh, if you live in a suburban cul-de-sac where the only way you can see your neighbor is cut across your lawn or go out in the street, you're much less likely to have uh, frequent and quality social interactions than, it, than if you live in a uh, tight neighborhood like I do with sidewalks and neighbors nearby and coffee shops where I'm going to bump into people and grocery stores all in walkable distance. It turns out when you look at two million surveys done by the Gallup organization, you find the happiest Americans are socially interacting between five and six hours a day. Uh, and you might say, wow, that's, that seems impossible. Well, it is impossible for most Americans who have an hour-long commute to work every day. They work eight to nine hours. They watch 4.4 hours of TV. They got to make lunch and dinner for their kids, and then they got to sleep some hours. So setting up your environment and your life 
So you're more likely to be happy is, is uh, what I advocate and, and uh, the blue zones of happiness suggests a blueprint for doing just that. So how are you going to implement that into, you know, into your blue zone solutions? I imagine that's the next level, right? It's not to feed people properly, but to actually get them to be happy, change their environment. What's the plan there? I imagine you have a plan because I don't think it doesn't seem like you're stopping anytime soon. Yeah, so we're getting very good at creating these policy bundles and helping a city work with those policy bundles to pick the ones that um, is, are right for their city. And we're, we're developing a happiness bundle um, that will make cities more likely to be happy. So a few of them, uh, there's a strong correlation between water quality and happiness. So if you live in a city with crappy water, like Flint, the, 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 the poster child, but also, you know, even Reno, Nevada, um, again, building streets for uh, humans and not just cars, um, putting up trees is a correlation between access to green space and happiness. So cleaning up uh, parks, um, planting trees on uh, a, a number of cities that have made deep investment in uh, growing trees, Boulder, Colorado, San Luis Obispo. Uh, nobody likes billboard signs. Um, there are some places around America have decided that we don't want billboard sign because they encourage us to buy more stuff that we don't need and spend the money we have on ways that aren't going to optimize our happiness and encourage us to buy food that isn't all that good for us. So there's a number of policies that cities can consider to that will favor happiness for the citizens. Does that include, like, there's a lot of research in Japan about forest bathing and it increases psychology and happiness, and there's, like, I think three forests in Japan that are certified forest bathing uh, hikes you can take to mood, raise your mood and support your optimal health. Tons of studies about that. I hear I live here in Boulder, Colorado, and, I mean, it's there's more bike paths than there are roads, but they're actually shrinking roads and making bike packs, bike packs bigger and bigger here, to the frustration of many people who are trying to still drive. Um, but um, is that part of it as well, getting people outside, getting them to hike, sort of this nature deficiency disorder thing that Americans have? Yeah, so think of, think of your life in Boulder. You, you can have lunch um, and go, and over your lunch, you can go take a nature hike and be back in time for a 1 o'clock afternoon. You can bike across Boulder in less time than it takes to drive. And, and you, it's, it is a relatively compact city with no, no high rises. So you still get that, that visual contact with green spaces. Um, yet there's a concentration of people. There's been a very active effort in, in, uh, your city to, to favor, uh, healthy foods. There's a correlation between the health of the food environment and the happiness of that environment. By the way, on, um, pick up National Geographic on Monday. Uh, we profiled Boulder as the happiest place in, in America. So, uh, Oh, wow, really? Neighbors will be pleased. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, we'll definitely, definitely read that. Dan, this is great. I can't tell you how impressed I am uh, the work that you're doing. Uh, I love the fact that you're implementing it and changing lives. It's so important. I've written seven books, doing this for a long, long time, and uh doing everything I can to make a dent in the culture and nothing close to what you've done, done oh, and are doing. And I really appreciate what you're doing for all of us and uh, bringing 
really important information back to us. And uh, just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Good luck for this book. Everybody, this book comes out today or comes out is actually already out, the book on happiness. So please pick that up um, and uh, get happy. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. It is such a joy. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Hi, did you like this video? Do you like our content here at Life Spa? You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash John DeYard right here and get this valuable content every week in your inbox. This recording is brought to you by Life Spa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at lifespa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.